How many of you heard that song this year, it's the most wonderful time of the year? You know that, that phrase? How many of you would agree with that? I think it's a great time of year. Depends on what? The time of day. <laughs> well, I hope this is the time of day that we're, you're excited about uh, Christmas and what God is doing. I can remember being excited about Christmas ever since I was a little bitty kid, can't you? I mean, Christmas has a different meaning for children. I mean, it's just an exciting, electrifying time. I love all the lights and all the glam and all the glit. And I've always really liked to go see very, very large Christmas trees. And, and then the anticipation of Christmas morning, getting up out of bed and going and looking underneath the tree and around the tree for all of the things that supposedly I'm going to get. You remember that? I remember there was a time when I was a small boy. My Dad was the pastor in Singing Hills Baptist Church in the Dallas area. And I remember having asked my dad uh, for a bicycle. I wanted a bike more than anything else. I wasn't more than first grade, maybe second grade, something like that. And, and uh, our, our church was just across the street from uh, the house that we lived in. We lived in a, a burb of Dallas at the time. And, um, and so... We had to go through the parking lot and through a lot, and then the school that I attended was on the other side of that lot, and all of my friends would ride their bicycles to school, and I was the only one that walked, and so then after school, they would ride around the neighborhood, and obviously, I was without a bike, so I didn't get to participate in those activities, and I wanted a bike more than anything else, and so that was the Christmas that I asked for the big ticket item, a bicycle. And I remember for weeks I had anticipated and longed for and thought about and dreamt of a bicycle and all the fun I was going to have on it. And finally, the night before Christmas came and most of our kids, you know, children just cannot sleep. Uh, and so we trick them into thinking, you know, if you don't go to bed, uh, the big guy's not coming in the morning. And for whatever reason, at some point, children finally go to sleep. And I remember waking up that morning. I mean, I can remember this like it was yesterday. I got up out of bed. I did not go get mom and dad. I went straight into our small living room in the house across the street from the church. And to my surprise, there wasn't a bicycle. And the horror finally hit me that probably I'm not going to get one. But I didn't really believe that, so I began looking around the house, and I looked in the garage, and I looked outside, and I looked in the backyard, and there was no bicycle. I did not get a bicycle. And in that disappointment and disillusionment, I finally realized you don't always get what you want. I should write a song with that in it. Now, some of you are wondering, what song is that? That just shows what kind of age you are today. You don't always get what you want. But you don't always get what you ask for. For how many times have you wanted something, you have asked for something from someone special during the holiday season, and you have not gotten it? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody at all? Surely you have. The disappointment and the disillusionment of not getting what is anticipated and what's expected on Christmas Day. Well, you know, you... Switch that over to prayer, and I wonder how many of us have asked God for certain things, and we've not gotten from God what we asked for. 
You have prayed and you have prayed and you have asked and you have asked and you have sought and you have sought and you have knocked and you have knocked. And in spite of all of your effort, God, as if he has been completely absent from your prayer request, he has been unattentive to your needs, he has not answered your prayer, and you have not gotten what you have asked for, and in the disillusionment and the heartache and the disappointment, you have said, what's the use? And I'm convinced that most people don't spend the time that we should spend in prayer is because at some point, at some time in our lives, we have come to God with a specific request and we have knocked and we have sought and we have asked and God has not delivered upon our request. When he walked away in disillusionment and said, what is the use? Why should I pray? Well, Jesus this morning is addressing his disciples And he's saying that the reason why we should pray is we should pray out of a dependence upon God. Disciples are totally and completely dependent upon God. We must turn to God and we must trust in God as disciples. We have studied for several months now, I mean several months, this beautiful narrative, this Sermon on the Mount from the words and the mouth of Jesus to those who would be disciples and to those who are his disciples. And he has challenged them to rise above the religious practice of his day, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and to live a life that seems almost impossible to reach. There there is a a religion that comes from the inside and works itself to the outside in which we are to practice and participate with Jesus as his disciples and to live exceptional, extraordinary lives. And most of his disciples, probably like you and I, are in, as we read this text, we wonder how in the world can I ever live up to the expectations of a disciple in this Sermon on the Mount? These are impossibilities. There is no way in the world that I can do it in and of myself and on my own. And you know what? You're right. You cannot. That's why as disciples, he's turning to those then and to us today and is saying the only way that you can make it, the only way you can rise to this level is complete and total dependence upon me to turn to me and trust in me as you ask, as you seek, and as you knock. And I will provide for your sufficiency and your lack of ability. And so I want us to turn to the text, and I want us to understand it, that as disciples, there's a principle that I want us to acknowledge. And here's the principle. A disciple must completely depend on his heavenly Father to provide sufficiently and abundantly all that he could ever need to follow Christ. There are things that you're going to need. There are necessities that you lack that are only found in the sufficiency of God himself. And as a Christ follower, you're going to have disciplines and difficulties and barriers and battles and an enemy and everything else is going to come and you're going to recognize and realize I don't have what it's it's going to take and I must then turn to Christ as I seek to follow him to see that this becomes a reality in my life and he will then continuously as the disciple turns to God and asks for God for the supply that he needs trusting in God, recognizing and realizing that in his time, according to his method, and in his way, he will provide. That's the assurance that Jesus gives to his disciples today. 
I want to go to the text and I want to look at basically four things that we discover as we think about our dependence upon the Lord. Dependence not only turns to and trust in God, but when we do that, we will discover, first of all, that there is a condition that God expects from his disciples. There's a condition that God expects from his disciples. He expects something from his disciples. He expects us to turn to him. He expects us to ask. He expects us to seek, and he expects us to knock. And I want us to take a look at the text in verse 7. It says, Jesus in his own words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. In this text, Jesus is saying there is a position that we must have in order to ask, to seek, and to knock. And as I have already alluded to this, and I'm going to continue to say this several times throughout our study, because I think sometimes it takes more than one time for us to get it, sometimes more than twice, sometimes more than three times, sometimes it takes a lifetime for us to get a principle that God is trying to interject into our lives. And the position is one of dependence upon him. It is a position of dependence Just in the word ask by itself is the word that is often described and defined in the word prayer. And this whole passage, this whole verse 7 is about prayer, petitioning God, coming to God in communion, in community, in an attitude and a dependence in prayer. And the position that we must have is that I am completely dependent upon God. I am insufficient in and of myself to make this which he's asking me to live out a reality in my life. And so I take a position now, God, unless you do it in me and through me, it will not happen. That drives me to prayer. And it's the independent people who often fail to pray and to realize the importance of prayer (coughs) because they're going to do it themselves. They're going to sit in the driver's seat. They're going to direct the course of their lives, and they're going to make things happen. And it isn't until things don't happen the way they hope that happen, or unless they make a complete failure of what they have done, it is then and only then that they turn to God and say, God, help me. And so it's a dependent position in which we come before God. In verse 7, he says, ask, but notice if we ask, what's the promise? If we ask, we shall receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, it will be opened. That is a promise. A promise that not only hears us, but he will answer our prayer. And I think sometimes most of us are a little bit disillusioned about prayers because we wonder, God, are you hearing? Are you listening? Do you comprehend? Do you understand? And will you answer? And he says, yes, I promise I will answer. If you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open. That is a promise. And God is a God who always, always, always keeps his promises. He is a faithful, trustworthy God in that he always does that which he promised. Yet there is a prerequisite in the text. As we look at this text, we must first seek before we receive. We must ask before it is given. And we must knock before the door is open. There's a prerequisite on our part. We must come to him and we must seek his will. There's a seeking of his will here. And I think the reality is that most of our prayer life is short on this one point, is that most of us come to him not seeking his will, but seeking our will to be done rather than his will to be done. 
We've not taken the time to study the scriptures and to seek out and to search the will of God in regard to this prayer and the purpose of God in this circumstance and the will of God in this situation. And because we have short-circuited that whole process, when we pray, we often don't pray seeking God's will. And we wonder then why our prayers are not answered. Because we've not sought the will of the Father. We're not interested in the work that he wants to fulfill in and through us. We're not interested in the ways in which he wants to do it. Because most of the time we want to treat God in our prayer life much like a, uh, an automatic machine where we put in the coins, push the button, and we instantly get gratification or what we have desired. And we must then seek the will of God. That's the prerequisite. But I want you to notice here the posture that is described in this prayer, in this, in this sentence, in, the, in these words of Christ. And it's a posture of progressively moving forward in the power and in the strength of the Lord himself. Because when we knock, the doors will be opened. The barriers will be removed. The battles will be fought and won. The obstacles will fall down. The enemy will be defeated. There's a posture here of knocking and doors opening, meaning those things that would hinder, hurt, or obstruct, or get in the way of the will, of the work, and the ways of God from being fulfilled in your life as you make the journey of discipleship in seeking out to do what he has commanded and called you to do. Those things will be removed, and you can walk in power and strength and see that which he desires to be done. Sounds almost like a televangelist, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But that's what Jesus says. You know, interesting passage in Luke chapter 2. I think it's around verse 36. Where we have after the birth of Christ, 40 days later, the mandate, the custom, and the command to take the child to Jerusalem to be circumcised. And Jesus, after he was born in Bethlehem, 40 days later, was taken in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, to Jerusalem to be circumcised. 40 days. And as they approached the temple, a guy named Simeon has been drawn by the Holy Spirit to the temple to perform the act of circumcision. And he prophesies and he blesses the Christ child. He has been long awaiting the arrival for many, many decades of his life, this, this promised Messiah, and now he has arrived, he's been promised. He's, the Holy Spirit said to him, Simeon, you are not going to die until you see the Messiah present. And God has granted that, that desire of his heart. And as Mary and Joseph are leaving that then, making their way through the court of the women to exit the temple, they run across a beautiful lady named Anna. Anna, who got married at 15, more than likely, lived with her husband for seven years, and he died. Tragic, isn't it? But what Hannah does after that is she dedicates, according to the scriptures, 84 years of her life to fast and to pray for the Messiah to arrive. Eighty-four years she prays. She has the gift of prophecy. She didn't have an itinerant ministry. She didn't have a public pulpit. She didn't have even a life group lesson that she taught or a Sunday school class. 
what Anna had was just her and the Lord. And she would open the scriptures and she had studied the word of God. And through the prophetic gift that God gave her, she knew that the Messiah was soon coming. And for 84 years, she persisted relentlessly praying on behalf of the Messiah and his coming. 84 years she prayed and she fasted and she worshiped. Let me ask you something. Have you prayed for something for 84 years? Have you been longing for God to do something for 84 years? Some of you say, you know, I've been praying for a, a year or five years or a decade or a couple of decades for something to happen, and it just hasn't happened. What God is saying here through the words of Jesus is not only does he command us to pray, but he says, I want you to pray persistently, continuously, constantly, never stop knocking on the door of heaven, never stop seeking, never stop asking, even if it takes 84 years. Don't give up. Disciples do not quit. And mainly the one reason why we don't quit is because as we pray, there's an obstacle or a barrier or a necessity that we need, and we pray for that, and God grants that. doesn't mean that as we take the next step, there isn't another obstacle, another barrier, another enemy, another necessity, and it requires prayer. And as we pray, God provides, and we take the next step, and then there's another one. And then as we pray, God provides, and that helps us along the journey then of discipleship. We must constantly, continually pray. And yet most of us, if we're honest, more than likely only pray in a time of crisis or a time of necessity or maybe when we bow our heads at our tables and pray and sometimes not even that to thank God for the food. But any other time, we're just simply not praying. He commands us. He gives us and expects us to meet the condition to pray, to persevere in prayer, to never stop praying. Don't cease praying. And if we and when we exceed this condition, notice what God promises. He commits an incredible amount of resources to those who pray. When we meet the condition of God, I want you to notice the commitment that God extends to the disciples who will pray. Notice in the text, verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. God wants to give us some assurances in this text. He wants to give us some confidences that when we pray, he's going to commit to provide for our needs and our necessities. He's going to come to our help. And what loving father wouldn't come to the help and the assistance of those children that he loves? For everyone. His commitment is to his people. For the everyone here doesn't mean everyone anytime without conditions. The everyone here, as we continue to read the narrative and the words of Jesus in regarding prayer, he talks about a relationship between the father and his son, or the father and his daughter, or the father and his children. And the people that he's describing here are disciples. And he's saying, when You, as my disciple, come to the Father through faith in the Son. You who are my people, who constantly, continually depend upon me. And because of that intimate love relationship, those are the people that I will provide for. Remember years ago when uh, one of the evangelists got in trouble for saying that God only hears the prayers of Christians. He doesn't hear the prayer of a Jew. You remember that? And the conflict and the controversy that brought about in our Southern Baptist Convention. 
Was he right? Does God hear the prayer, of the prayers of everyone, or only the prayers of his disciples? For the only access that we have into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, is through Jesus. And the only prayer that he hears for those who are not in Christ is the prayer of repentance and salvation. And then his commitment is to his disciples, to his followers, to his children. The father has a relationship and a commitment to his children in that the people of God can count on his provisions. Notice in the text, they, when they ask, they will receive. They will receive the provisions that are necessary to carry them along the journey in the walk and in the work that God has called them to do because God has a purpose that he wants to fulfill. We are seeking his will, and in that will, he has a purpose. He has a mission. He has a plan. He has a work. He has things that he wants to do in us and through us. And as we pray, as we meet that condition, God is working out his will in us and through us to empower us and to enable us to provide for us exactly Exactly what we need in order to do that which he has called us to do. For there is a purpose, and in that purpose, God always grants the power sufficient for the task. If you knock, the door will come open. There's an incredible power that comes to the believer who walks in a spirit of continually, constantly praying. And as God begins to knock down the walls and push aside the barriers and defeating the enemies and providing the necessities. They're able to walk in the fullness of the strength of the power of the Lord as he is providing along the way, and they're able to see incredible, miraculous things done. You go to a text in Matthew chapter 14 where you have Jesus has just completed an incredible, miraculous thing, and he tells his disciples, I want you guys to go out into the boat, and uh, I'm going to dismiss the crowd, and I'm going to go pray a little bit, and you guys just meet me on the other side. Well, the disciples do what Jesus has asked them to do. They immediately get in the boat and begin to go to the other side, and Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he goes up to the mountain to pray, and as they're out in the middle of the, of the Galilean Sea, a storm begins to erupt, and all of a sudden, they see this image coming toward them in the midst of the storm. And they conclude that it's a ghost and they're afraid. I wonder if they started praying then. Probably. Lord help us. <laughs> There's a ghost. There's a figure coming to us walking on the sea in the storm. And then all of a sudden they recognize that it's Jesus. And Simon Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me that I come out to meet you. What an incredible statement. What an, an amazing request. But the response of Jesus is even more amazing than that. He said, come on, Simon Peter. And Simon Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins to walk on water. God had called him first to go out into the sea, and there was a storm, and they were afraid. They were in the center of the will of God. There was no reason to be afraid, and yet they were afraid. And when they saw a ghost, they were afraid. And now Simon Peter has the gall to ask Jesus, if you command me, I can come to you. Call me, and I'll come. And he said, well, come on. He steps out of the boat, and miraculously, he begins to walk on water. And as he's walking on water, the Bible says that the waves begin to beat up against his legs, and the, way, the wind begins to beat against his face. He begins to look around, and seeing the obstacles, and seeing the things that are going on, begins to doubt, and he begins to sink. And the words that are described here in this one very simple prayer, and when he saw the wind, he was afraid, verse 30, and beginning to sink, he cried out, three words, 
Lord, save me. That's it. Lord, save me. And the Bible says here, immediately he reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Here we have God commanding Simon Peter first to go out into the boat. The storm came. There was no reason to be afraid because they were in sin of the will of God for their lives. Then he was called to get out of the boat and walk on water. And he's walking toward Jesus. He takes his eyeballs, Christ, and begins to notice the circumstances in which he is traveling, making the journey toward Christ, following Jesus' command. And all of a sudden he doubts and begins to sink. And God extends his hand to Simon Peter at the right time and makes a commitment. Because why? Because Simon Peter is one of his disciples. And because he is following the commandment of the Lord... God is not going to let him drown. He's not going to let him die. And he immediately picked him up. And imagine, hand in hand, side by side, they're still walking on the water toward the boat. This time, Peter's hanging on to Jesus. You think he's hanging on pretty tightly? I would think so. And as soon as they step in the boat, what happens to the storm? It dissipates. The wind ceases. The storm stops. And the disciples marvel. God extends that kind of commitment to those who meet the conditions of God. And they pray. But he also wants us to see the consistency that God employs to his disciples. There is something that God wants us to understand. God never changes. Jesus wants his disciples to realize and recognize that his commitment, his character, his conditions, and and and. Every attribute of God in that God is, is so unique that, that while the world that we live in is in a constant state of flux, it is constantly changing and it's constantly fluid and it's constantly in motion and things are constantly changing, that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Malachi 3, 4 says, I am the Lord and I never change. God is not only constant, but God is consistently the same. And what he does for one, he will do for every one of his disciples. Notice verse 9. Or which one of you is, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The consistency of God is weaved together through the family tie. A tie that, that, is, that is bound so tightly that it never loosens up. I was on the treadmill yesterday doing a pretty heavy-duty workout, trying to lose a couple of pounds, and my shoestring came untied. What do you do when that happens? You get off. Why is that? I like my face the way it is. I know it's not as attractive as you'd like it to be, but it could be a lot worse. <laughs> and so I get off, tie my shoe. This is a tie that binds so closely between father and his children that never is untied. It is so knitly weaved together. It is a family tie. He talks about in this passage a, a tie between father and son. And there's a family tie. I have a father and I am always going to be his son. That is a tie that can never be unbroken. I have sons. I have children. We gave birth to them, and they are always related to me, although there might be sometimes they wish they were not related to me, but they're always related to me. 
And God is saying that there is a family tie that is so tightly weaved that, that I am committed to my family. I am committed to my children as any earthly father should be and is committed to his family. I am even more so committed to my family. And once we come into the family, we can't lose that relationship with the father because we're always his children. But in that family tie, there is an incredible faithfulness on the part of the father because he says here that if we ask for bread, what will he provide? Will he provide a stone? No, he'll provide bread. If we ask for fish, why would he provide a serpent? And what he's saying here through these words, Jesus is saying that that he is faithful to supply our necessities. He is faithful to supply what we need. He is a faithful God. You can count on him. He is consistent. And we can be confident with this reality that God will meet our needs and that God is not only faithful, but let me tell you this, God is also fair. He's fair. Some of us sometimes think that God's not fair. But God is fair. Because it says here in the text, if we ask for a piece of bread, is it going to provide a stone? And the answer to that question is... No. If we ask for a fish, is he going to provide a serpent, a snake? The answer is no. Why would he not do that? Because God is not a God who would trick us. God is not a God who would harm us. God is not a God who would hurt us. Interesting. I, I want you to take, take, take a moment, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is, this is, this is interesting and I'm going to have to make this point very quick, but Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 35, we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They come to Jesus in this passage, and they ask him. Notice what they ask him. I think this is, this is, this is it just blows me away. These disciples would have the gall to ask Jesus this. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. God, I want you to do whatever I want, whenever I want it, exactly like I want it, I want to be spoiled rotten. Some of us are like that because the disciples who walked with Jesus every single day are like that, and they're reflective sometimes of how we are and who we are. I want you to do whatever you ask. No holes barred, no limitations, just write me a blank check and I'm going to put in the amount. Wouldn't you like to do that? And they asked him, well, he said to them, notice verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? I think Jesus was sort of just going along. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think he does that with us. He just lets us kind of go along. Just, okay, let's, let's go where you want to go. And they said to him, grant us to sit on, the, on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. James wants to sit on the left and John wants to sit on the right or vice versa, but they want to sit with Jesus when he gets to his kingdom on his right and his left. They want a position of glory. They want a position of recognition. They want a position of honor. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. I think sometimes when we come to him in prayer, he says to us, you don't know what you're asking. 
Because Jesus is about to tell them, I'm going to grant your request, but you're not going to like it because there's a price to pay to grant your request. You're going to have to suffer to get there. There's going to be a cost along the way. And most disciples want answered prayer without any sacrifice, without any cost, without any commitment. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, as he says to us, you want your, an- your, your prayers answered? There's a price, there is a cost, there is a consequence to you fulfilling the will, the plans, the purposes, and the intentions of God. And sometimes God calls us to hard things, to difficult places, because in doing so, his will is being accomplished, and his purposes are being achieved. But that's not really how we pray, is it? We want God to release the pressure. We want God to remove the circumstance. We want want God to, to, to release the difficulties and to make everything easy. Because that's how we like it. Easy. Well, you know what? Sometimes I said to my kids, just get over it, Jack. It's life. There's no freebies in life. Life as itself is not easy. And if we try to insulate and isolate our kids to the point and we make everything easy for them, they're going to grow up to be entitled, spoiled brats, which I think is partially what's wrong with some of our culture today. They want it for nothing. And it doesn't come that way. Jesus said, follow me, pick up the cross and die and follow me. There is a cost. There is a sacrifice. This is your best life now, but that road leads to death, not to health, wealth, and prosperity. Notice in the text, he not only is a consistent God that employs all these wonderful benefits, but he, is, he wants us to be certain as God establishes this beautiful relationship where he wants as the Heavenly Father for us as his children to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel loved, and and just to know that that he, he can and he will provide. You know, most fathers are good fathers. Every now and then, somebody grows up with a really bad father. But good fathers love their children. Good fathers protect their children. Good fathers provide for their children. Good fathers make sure that when their kids go to bed at night, they don't, they're not afraid, they're not worried, they're not stressed out, they're not worried about their next meal, they're secure, they're loved. And, and, and God is saying here, if a depraved, carnal, fleshly father can be that good to his earthly children, then how much better can the Heavenly Father be that to His children? That's the contrast. That's the comparison. Notice verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? 
He wants to be certain, first of all, about his authority because he says here, notice in the text, who is in heaven. Where is God? He's not reminding them how distant God is from them, but he's reminding them where God sits, and God sits on a throne, and he's in heaven, and sitting on the throne in heaven, he is the ultimate authority. He is the sovereign Lord. He dictates and determines his will, and his will cannot be thwarted. No matter how we pray or what we pray for, God's will is going to be accomplished, and he will determine by which method it's accomplished, and how that will is accomplished, and how he uses you. And God is Lord over the earth and over your life. And as a disciple, we submit to his authority. God, show me, reveal to me, do in me as you will. You be Lord. And when we recognize his authority, notice his attentiveness in the text. He knows how to give good gifts. He knows. He's that attentive. He not only is ever-present, but he is all-knowing. And God knows even before we ask or think exactly what we need, and he gives it when we need it at the exact moment in the right method. Everything's perfect according to his timing. He knows what you need. And yet he asks us to ask him, what is our need? And as we see this beautiful attentiveness by a loving God who is ever-present and all-knowing, notice his ability. I think it's, it's awesome. It says, notice the text, and he will give good things. He will give good things to those who ask him. Good things. Everything that God gives is good. It's good in that it will accomplish his will. It is good in that it will fulfill his work. It is good in that it will accomplish the work that he wants to do in you and through you. It is all good. It is not only perfect, but it is incredibly wonderful. And God is more than able. Ephesians 3.20 says, he is able. He is able. I don't care what circumstance you are facing, what situation is in your life, what enemy you are confronted with, what barrier is in your way, God is able. He is able to destroy it, to defeat it, to overcome it, to knock it down. He is able to grant it. God is able. Stop doubting him. Stop denying his all-powerful sufficiency in that God who is sovereign Lord over everything is sitting on his throne and everything that he wishes to accomplish and he desires to be done, it is done. Why? Because he is able. But I like the last part of this verse. Notice his abundance. This is beautiful. How much more is your father. How much more is your heavenly father? A human father has limitations. There's only so much that a human father can do. We're not all powerful. We don't have the ability to make everything happen. We have limitations, but our God who is sufficient and who is able knows no limitations and notice he is very gracious to you. 
Grace is unmerited favor. It's something that he gives, not because you deserve it, but because of your relationship to him. It really bothers me, and I love HGTV, but it really bothers me when I watch it sometimes. And they're, they're going through this thing in the early part of the, 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 you know, the, the 30-minute segment, and, and they say, well, we're going to build this to you because you deserve it. They deserve a 5,000-square-foot house? Everybody wish you deserved that? And remember, there's a large mortgage with that, and there's electricity and heating and maintenance, cleaning. I'm trying to, I'm looking at scaling down. It's a gracious gift that is given that is unmerited favor from God. And he is a gracious God. And he gives it based upon your relationship to Christ. When you ask, you receive. When you seek, you will find. When you knock, it will be opened. But notice his generosity. His generosity is much more. How much more? He is a generous God. Most of us see him as a stingy God. The fact is, if he didn't bless you with anything else more than you have today, he's been more gracious and more generous to you than he could possibly have ever been. Just your salvation is not only a gracious act from God, but it's incredibly generous. It's a really favorite story of mine about uh, a family who went back to their you know, small town. They went to the big city and got a big city job and their parents still lived in the hometown that they lived in, a very small community. And so they went back during the Christmas holidays to their small hometown community, you know, just a couple of thousand people and had a kind of an old hometown square type thing. And, and so mom decided that she was going to take her son to her favorite place where she went as a little girl to get a soda pop. And it was one of those old-fashioned type stores that had a counter, you know, and, uh, and, and the, the, whole, the whole thing, you know. And uh, she remembered a little girl getting soda pops and, and, and ice cream there and sitting on the stool and all that. And as she walked in with her son, the man who owned the establishment was still there, had been there since she was a little girl, called her out by name, remembered her. And they had a l lovely conversation. And they sat and had some ice cream and, you know, and a Coke float and, and all of that and paid the ticket. And on the way out, the, the proprietor turned to the little boy, and he got a very large bowl of candy, and he took off the lid, and he handed it to the boy and said, here, is it all right, Mom? Mom said, yeah, that's fine. Put your hand in here and get as much as you want. And the little boy just stood there. He didn't move, not a muscle. But go ahead, son, it's okay. Stick your hand in here, and as much as you can get with your hand, you can have. And he just stood there. He asked him a third time, and he got the same reaction. Asked him a fourth time, the same response. Finally, the man reached down in there, grabbed a big handful, and handed it out. And the little boy put his hands out like this with two hands and carried it out to the car. And as I got out of the car, the mom looked at her little son and said, Son, why didn't you put your hand in the cookie jar? And he looked at her smiling and said, Because, Mom, his hands are bigger than mine. God's hands are bigger than yours. God's hands are bigger than yours. You can do it on your own. But it's far less than if God did it for you and through you and in you. 
And, and it's beautiful in that passage in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3.20. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the purpose or his power at work in us. God is a gracious God and who wants to bless us with incredible generosity if we would just look to him and recognize and realize that his hands are much larger than ours. And when we let him work in our lives and through our lives, all things are possible. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Are you turning to and are you trusting in God? Let's pray. Your 